I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A maritime disaster cloaked in mystery. It took no time at all for the boat to burn down to the waterline. A lawman who harbors a damning secret... It's going to be quite a shock to the people when they find out what happens. And a prospector's sparkling scheme. This was as intoxicating as it could possibly be. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Topeka, Kansas. Established in 1842 as a ferry crossing along the Oregon Trail... This city is now the state capital. And here, visitors will find an institution dedicated to safeguarding the region's rich history, the Kansas Historical Society. Inside are such unique items as a 1950s mini diner and one-of-a-kind furniture crafted by local artists. But among the lively and novel designs is one object that is as common as it is deadly. This artifact has a walnut woodstock, and attached to it is an iron barrel. The overall length of the object is about 42 inches. As Blair Tarr, the museum's curator, can attest, this firearm triggered a shocking chain of events. This artifact is an example of where the line got crossed in the Old West between what was lawful and what was lawless. Who owned this gun? And what role did it play in an act of pure treachery? July 1882, Caldwell, Kansas. This rough-and-tumble cattle town is plagued by uncontrollable violence. It was not a safe place for a lot of people to be. Cowboys came into town. They usually let off steam, and they usually did it with firearms. And when a lawman would go to settle the matter he would be the one on the losing end of the firearms. And when the latest city marshal is gunned down, the town is left scrambling to fill his shoes. So when a former Texas lawman rides into town looking for work, he is quickly hired on as deputy marshal. His name? Henry Brown. He has some interesting characteristics. He's a man that seemingly has no vices. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't gamble. Brown seems like the perfect man for the job, and he quickly gets to work. In a very short period of time, big changes are noticed in Caldwell. Residents are so pleased with Brown's performance that they present him with a Winchester rifle, the same one on display at the Kansas State Historical Society. 
and it has a little plaque on it that reads, presented to H.N. Brown for services rendered to the city of Caldwell. For the next 16 months, Brown further endears himself to the townspeople. He seems to be settling down in their community by taking a bride. He has every appearance of someone who is going to be in Caldwell for a long, long time. A month after tying the knot, Brown requests a few days leave. He explains that he is hunting down an outlaw with a $1,200 bounty on his head. And it's going to be quite a shock to the people in Caldwell when they find out what happens. April 30th, 1884, Medicine Lodge, Kansas. At 9 a.m., citizens of this small town 70 miles west of Caldwell notice four strangers approaching the Medicine Valley Bank. Two of them enter through a side door of the bank. A third man enters through the front door. Fourth man is behind the bank with the horses. Inside, the men pull out their guns and order everyone to throw up their hands. But the bank's president, Wiley Payne, has another plan. He reaches for his gun, but before he can fire, a robber shoots him down, unleashing a wave of violence. The outlaws turn their attention to the cashier who is standing near the vault, and they immediately shoot him as well. But before the cashier collapses dead, he reaches for the safe door and locks it, denying the outlaws the loot. They don't have any money, which means this has been an absolute failure, but they're now trying to get out of town. A posse quickly forms to track them down. And just a few miles out of town, the robbers make a critical mistake. They wind up in a ravine with only one way in and out. By that time, the posse is right behind them. They're blocking the exit from the canyon. The robbers have no choice but to surrender. And when they arrest the outlaws, the members of the posse are shocked. There's a great surprise because one of the men is immediately recognized as the city marshal of Caldwell, Henry Brown. After his arrest, Henry Brown is shot dead while trying to escape, and his accomplices are hanged by an angry mob. As details of the incident become public, the residents of Caldwell are shocked to discover that the weapon they had gifted their once beloved marshal played a central role in his crimes. The Winchester rifle that had been given to their great city marshal has now been used in a robbery which has killed two people. So how did this respected marshal end up on the wrong side of the law? Soon the press discovers that before he became a lawman, Brown rode with one of the most notorious outlaws in the country. Brown had been running with Billy the Kid. He'd been stealing horses, and he was wanted for two charges of murder in New Mexico. But after reforming his desperado ways, why did Brown return to a life of crime? Some argue that he struggled to cope with the pressures of his new lifestyle. Since he'd gotten married, he had bought a house, and he had now accumulated a bit of debt, and it appears that worried him. So he embarked on a risky plan to pay off his creditors, but it backfired. Today, Henry Brown's Winchester rifle remains on display at the Kansas State Historical Society, where it serves as a paradoxical symbol of the lawman who couldn't escape his outlaw ways. 
Located at the picturesque confluence of the James River and the Chesapeake Bay, Newport News, Virginia is a city with a proud tradition of shipbuilding and seafaring. And this nautical legacy is celebrated at the Mariner's Museum. On display is a collection of navigational tools dating back to the 17th century, the salvaged propeller from the USS Monitor, and a set of miniature ships made by craftsman August F. Crabtree. But as chief curator Lyle Forbes tells it, sitting among these storied objects is an item that looks more like ocean flotsam than museum treasure. It's made of plastic, it has tubing, it's yellowed, it's crumpled up, it's not in top condition. But despite its weathered appearance, this artifact was once a functional device with a crucial purpose. What is this bizarre contraption? And what role did it play in an unbelievable quest for survival? It's January 1982 in the Canary Islands, just off the western coast of Africa. Since childhood, 29-year-old Steve Callahan has been an avid sailor. For the past two years, he's devoted all his energy to creating a vessel of his own design, a small sailboat christened Napoleon Solo. Now he's setting out on an adventure of a lifetime. He wanted to live out a dream he'd had to sail solo to the Caribbean. On January 29th, with his boat full of provisions, he sets off from the Canary Islands en route to the island of Antigua. He expects the nearly 3,000-mile journey will take less than a month. Over the first week of Steve's trip, the weather was actually pretty good and Steve was hoping to shorten the amount of time that he was actually going to be sailing towards Antigua. But on the sixth day, Callahan's luck takes a turn when the weather shifts. A storm came up from the South Atlantic, a gale. Callahan remains calm. He knows that the best thing he can do is wait it out. So he lowers the sails and climbs into his bunk for the night. When Steve goes to bed, he's really hoping that the storm will play itself out. But Callahan is awoken by a terrifying thud. When he looks down, he discovers a terrible sight. His cabin is rapidly filling with water. Callahan grabs as many supplies as he can. He then jumps aboard his sailboat's life raft, takes shelter under its canopy, and drifts away from the sinking Napoleon Solo. So when dawn breaks, the storm has dissipated. Steve moves from panic to, okay, I need to figure out what I'm going to do. Callahan takes inventory of his supplies, a small amount of food, a spear gun he can use for fishing, and three solar distillation kits that produce fresh water, one of which is now on display at the Mariner's Museum. But the kits barely produce enough water for Callahan to survive. Steve realizes that he needs to limit himself to about a pint of water daily. Callahan reckons that he's 450 miles west of the Canary Islands. And with no sail, he is at the mercy of the sea. All he can do is wait and pray for rescue. Steve's now hoping the life raft will drift into the major shipping lanes so that larger cargo ships will actually see him. After 14 long days, an exhausted and dehydrated Callahan finally spots a ship in the distance. He is elated and he tries to signal to attract the ship's attention. 
but it all goes for naught because the ship passes him by. Weeks pass, and Callahan realizes the current has taken him well beyond the major shipping lanes. His prospects for survival look bleak. On March 19th, Callahan has now been adrift in his raft in the Atlantic for 43 days. That morning begins like any other. He readies his spear gun to fish for breakfast. He fires at a Dorado and hits his target. But as the fish struggles in the water, it drags the spear, puncturing the bottom tube of the raft. The chilling sound of escaping air stops Callahan cold. Will this be the disaster that finally spells his doom? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course. Present my thoughts the way I want. Right again. Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh. There it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's won. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. It's March 1982. After his boat sinks on a solo attempt to cross the Atlantic... Amateur sailor Stephen Callahan finds himself adrift on a life raft, hoping for rescue. But when that raft springs a leak, his chances for survival are shrinking. So will this captain go down with his raft? Callahan makes a desperate attempt to fix the raft's puncture tube. With fishing line and a seat cushion, he creates a plug to seal the leak, then reinflates it with a manual pump. And amazingly, it works. But the spear he's relied on for fishing has been damaged, and now he faces starvation. He's still adrift in the ocean. He's still not seeing ships. He's still in this predicament, much as he was before the leak began. 
Then, miraculously, on his 75th day in the raft, he spots some twinkling lights on the horizon. And with incredible excitement, he realizes they are on a shoreline. For the first time, Callahan falls asleep on the raft with a glimmer of hope. The next morning, after he's been adrift for 76 days, Steve awakes to find a small boat approaching him. After 76 days and an incredible 1,800 miles, Callahan is rescued by fishermen and taken back to the island of Guadalupe. After recovering from his journey, Callahan goes on to write a book about his remarkable experience. And today, his solar still, on display at the Mariner's Museum, helps tell his unbelievable story of survival against all odds. The third largest metropolis in Ohio, Columbus was once called the most brilliantly illuminated city in the country when it installed a series of festive arches down its main thoroughfare. And shedding light on this luminous past is the Ohio History Center. On display is a 19th century bicycle, a two-headed calf, and the skeletal remains of a mastodon. But one item speaks to the state's more sinister side. It's rather plain looking. It's just a series of beads on a chain. There's a crucifix attached to it. It's not really that uh, striking. But according to museum manager Mark Holbrook, the owner of these sacred beads was far from saintly. This artifact is actually connected to one of the most notorious crimes in the state of Ohio. So who did these rosary beads once belong to? And how are they linked to a heinous murder spree that shocked the nation? August 1st, 1937, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Doctors at Bethel Hospital are struggling to help a 67-year-old patient in excruciating pain named George Obendorfer. They can't figure out what is wrong with this gentleman. They're searching for some clue as to why he's ill. But their efforts are in vain. At 6.30 p.m., Obendorfer takes his last breath. Doctors were rather befuddled as to what caused his death. In fact, hospital officials fear this may be a case for the police and quickly contact the authorities. When they begin to track the history of this gentleman, an interesting thing pops up. Detectives learned that Obendorfer was a visitor to the city and had come to the hospital from a local hotel. And that same establishment has just filed a report of stolen diamonds. So the police began to wonder if there's a possibly a connection between the death of the visitor and the theft of the diamonds at the hotel. And though he had died alone, Mr. Obendorfer had not been traveling alone. The hotel staff tells the police that the gentleman had been with a young woman and her son. Using the hotel registry, they identify the woman as Miss Anna Hahn, a resident of Ohio. Hoping she can provide some insight into Obendorfer's death or the robbery, investigators track Anna down in her hometown of Cincinnati. An attractive woman in her early 30s, Anna had emigrated from Germany a few years earlier and was soon joined by her young son. Under questioning, the seemingly pleasant mother explains her connection to Obendorfer. She admitted that she met him on the train on the way to Colorado Springs. 
They got along very well, and they decided to share a room together while on vacation. But, she says, shortly after arriving at the hotel, George became ill and went to the hospital. Anna claims to have had no further contact with him and asserts that she knows nothing of the robbery. Investigators are vexed. But then there's a break in the case. Back in Colorado, investigators question a local pawn shop about the missing diamonds and make a critical discovery. One pawn shop owner does tell the police that he did have a young woman and her son come in and try to sell diamonds. He identifies her from a photograph as Anna Hahn. Soon, investigators begin digging into her past and discover that there is more to Anna Hahn than meets the eye. The police discovered that she had been a caregiver for the last several years, primarily to older gentlemen. In May of 1937 in Cincinnati, Anna had begun looking after a fellow German immigrant named Jacob Wagner. But within weeks under Anna's charge, the 78-year-old was dead. The cause was listed as heart disease. Now, investigators in Ohio aren't so sure the death wasn't murder. Police have his body exhumed so an examination could be held. And when the results come back, they reveal the horrendous truth. Toxicology reports indicate that his body contained an excessive large amount of arsenic, enough to kill four men. With probable cause, police search Anna's house, where they make a shocking discovery. They find arsenic in the basement, and they're fairly convinced that Anna Hahn has murdered Jacob Wagner. But that's not all. Police now suspect he wasn't her only victim. Over a span of four years, a total of eight elderly individuals, including George Obendorfer in Colorado, died shortly after they were taken under Anna's care. On August 16, 1937, Anna Hahn is indicted in the murder of Jacob Wagner. And at trial, the motive behind her vicious actions becomes painfully clear. Anna Hahn was the beneficiary of Jacob Wagner's will. She did so simply for money. She garnered her elderly victim's trust, elicited funds, and then heartlessly poisoned the very food she served him. The jury takes less than two hours to deliberate and find Anna Hahn guilty of murder. They recommend no mercy. That means execution. On December 7, 1939, Anna takes hold of this rosary, now on display at the Ohio History Center, and says a prayer. Then, at 8 p.m., Anna Hahn is sent to the electric chair. And today, this rosary serves as a stark relic of America's first female serial killer to die in the electric chair, driven there by murderous, unrelenting greed. Along the western shore of the Mississippi River lies the historic town of Marion, Arkansas, whose namesake, the Revolutionary War General Francis Marion, is known as the father of guerrilla warfare. The region's storied past is on display at the Crittenden County Historical Museum. Here, visitors will find a pristine Confederate uniform, an antique pump organ, and an assortment of period farm tools. But according to historian Louis Intress, there is one easily overlooked object here 
with a disturbing tale to tell. It's just a simple man-made brick, grayish in color, showing a few little burn marks on it. But the artifact tells the story of one of the great moments in American history pertaining to the Civil War. What is this rock-like shard? And what part did it play in the worst maritime disaster in American history? April, 1865. As the Civil War draws to a close, the states of the Southern Confederacy have been reduced to ruins. But amidst the devastation are stirrings of hope, as thousands of Union prisoners of war are now free to commence their long journeys home. They knew they were going to go home. Their spirits must have soared. But with railroads across the South systematically destroyed by warfare, there is no easy route north. To solve the problem, the federal government conscripts dozens of Mississippi River steamboats. The government would pay $5 per soldier and $10 per officer for passage on these boats going north. Many of the boats now had an opportunity for a big payday. At the helm of a luxurious riverboat called the SS Sultana is 33-year-old Captain J. Cass Mason. When his boat arrives in Vicksburg, Mississippi, Captain Mason meets with northern officers in the hopes of striking it rich. This was a one-time opportunity. Captain Mason knew that he had quite a bit of competition in carrying these soldiers north. If he didn't act fast, he would lose everything. On April 24th, Mason packs 2,000 soldiers aboard, well beyond the Sultana's capacity of 400, and heads up the Mississippi. But on April 27th, at approximately 2 a.m., the quiet tranquility of the journey is shattered by a tremendous explosion. A conflagration of heat and fire, it took no time at all for the boat to burn down to the waterline. When the sun rises on the Mississippi, more than 1,600 passengers have perished, including the Sultana's captain, J. Cass Mason. With no explanation for this tragedy, and with post-war tensions running high, rumors begin to swirl. Is an accident to blame, or has the Sultana been the victim of Confederate sabotage? In the wake of the disaster, maritime officials searched the Sultana's wreckage for clues. Small fragments of the ship, like this furnace brick housed at the Crittenden County Historical Museum, are found scattered for miles in every direction. And they seem to offer a plausible explanation. The principal reason for the explosion was deemed to have been the inadequate boiler and a lack of water within the boiling system. This finding is lent credence when a Vicksburg shipyard worker claims a local inspector discovered a rupture in the Sultana's boiler just prior to her taking on passengers. Both men said that the boat was not seaworthy, but within a matter of a few hours, they changed their minds and signed off on allowing the boat to leave, provided a small patch was placed over the ruptured area. Investigators claim that rather than risk his payday by waiting for a replacement boiler, Mason ordered the hasty repairs to be made. The commission concludes that the shoddy workmanship was to blame. This was the accepted truth until a few years later. An article in a newspaper brought up the idea that there might have been some Southern sabotage. According to the account, a Confederate spy named Robert Loudon brought down the Sultana. 
Loudon claimed that he snuck on board the Sultana while it was docked in Memphis, Tennessee. With him, he carried a bomb designed to resemble a large lump of coal. Loudon allegedly placed the device in the Sultana's coal storage bin, where later that night, an unsuspecting fireman shoveled it into the Sultana's furnace. But is there any truth to Loudon's extraordinary tale? There's been a lot of people who have looked at this story. The testimony of the survivors and the actual physics of the explosion don't meet with the story surrounding sabotage. But to this day, many are still convinced that the explosion was an act of revenge perpetrated by the vanquished Confederacy. Today, this rough fragment at the Crittenden County Historical Museum is a solemn memento of an epic tragedy that rocked America during its most painful conflict. Elizabethtown, Kentucky. This quiet hamlet was established on July 4th, 1797, and was once home to Thomas Lincoln, father of our 16th U.S. president. And in the heart of this historic town is an institution that showcases the region's pioneering spirit, the Hardin County History Museum. On display is the cabin door from Abe Lincoln's boyhood home, a replica of an early 1930s general store, and letter-pressed plates used to print the Elizabethtown News. But among these quaint artifacts are five stones that are linked to a land of unforeseen riches. They are tiny little what look like bits of glass, but when the light hits them just right, they glimmer and they flash green and red and blue. As author and historian Ron Elliott asserts, these gems hypnotized some of the most powerful men of their day. These stones are the stuff that dreams are made of. What role did these gemstones play in a glittering tale of discovery, power, and greed? San Francisco, 1870. Nearly two decades after the California gold rush, the region is still rife with speculators trying to strike it rich. And on December 1st, a mining and drilling veteran named Philip Arnold arrives at the office of a former associate and investor, George Roberts, with a favor to ask. He had concealed beneath his coat a small buckskin pouch, which he told Mr. Roberts he would like to store in his safe. Naturally curious, Roberts presses him to find out what's inside. And what he discovers is a bag full of raw, uncut gems. He saw not only diamonds, but rubies and emeralds and sapphires. Then Arnold reveals the surprising story of where he found them. He told him, I found them in the northwest corner of Colorado. And Arnold explains there are more where these came from. These diamonds just laying on top of the ground, waiting to be picked up. The pair agrees to a partnership in a mining operation. But Roberts doesn't want to subject himself to unnecessary risk. So he calls on one of the most knowledgeable jewelers in the country, Charles Lewis Tiffany, the founder of Tiffany & Company. After examining the stones, Tiffany estimates the gem's value at a staggering $1.5 million. A giddy Roberts immediately reaches out to wealthy investors for financing. This was as intoxicating as it could possibly be. The investors were dreaming of the riches that was to be had. Now the eager financiers want to see the bounty with their own eyes. So Arnold guides them on a grueling four-day trek through the mountains of northwestern Colorado, 
until they finally reach a plateau. Philip Arnold pointed out where he had found those diamonds. The wealthy speculators immediately begin searching, and within minutes, excited shouts rise up. They soon unearth from the dirt handful upon handful of diamonds and other precious rocks, several of which are now on display at the Hardin County History Museum. By dark, they had gathered approximately 500 carats of gemstones. The men are convinced that their new operation can extract up to $1 million in precious minerals every month. But just before the real work begins, Arnold announces that he wants a quieter life and moves back to his home state of Kentucky. He sells his stake in the company for $350,000, pulling out of a venture that could have made him a millionaire. Investors were happy to get rid of him. Then now that he was out of the way, they could take 100% of the profits. But soon, some begin to argue that this discovery is nothing more than a flash in the pan. In November of 1872, the head of the U.S. Geological Survey, Clarence King, approaches the mining company with despairing news. He believes their gem field is a sham. Clarence King was enough of a geologist to know that diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and sapphires would not possibly occur in the same location. And after analyzing bedrock and soil samples, he concludes the field was deliberately littered with gems, a practice known as salting. The fraud is publicly exposed, and devastated investors lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. The San Francisco Chronicle said that this was the most gigantic and barefaced swindle of our age. Soon, suspicion falls on the man who discovered the field, Philip Arnold. But how could he have so masterfully manipulated these titans of industry? The answer seems to emerge when Arnold's former manager at a drilling company comes forward with surprising information. He recounts that Arnold was intrigued by the similarity between industrial diamonds used in drill bits and pre-cut jewelry-quality gems. He and his boss were discussing the fact that most of the people in America were so ignorant of diamonds that they wouldn't have any trouble passing off these industrial and low-grade diamonds as gem-quality stones. It is soon discovered that Arnold acquired industrial diamonds and other uncut gemstones from a London jeweler for $37,000, significantly less than the appraisal of Charles Tiffany. But how did the noted jeweler get it so wrong? Although he was an expert in cut diamonds, Tiffany had little experience assessing the rough, unfinished variety. Despite the evidence against him, Arnold is never charged with a crime. It seems his victims simply want this humiliating story to go away. For his part, Arnold strenuously maintains his innocence until he passes away in 1879. And today, these diamonds on display at the Hardin County History Museum remind visitors of the epic hoax that fleeced some of the world's shrewdest investors. Staten Island, New York. A third of the residents in this New York City borough claim Italian heritage, more than any other county in the U.S. And it's this culture that's on display at the Garibaldi Meucci Museum, an institution that celebrates the Italian general Giuseppe Garibaldi and inventor Antonio Meucci. Tucked away among army regalia from the Italian Revolution and aging 19th century photographs, 
sits two seemingly plain objects that are more than just ordinary pieces of wood. They are light tan in color, and they are about five inches long, an inch and a half in diameter. They come in a pair. According to historian Louis Leonini, these devices gave rise to an invention whose impact resonated around the globe. These instruments represent one of the most important developments of the 20th century. So what are these objects? And how are they linked to one of the most ubiquitous items in modern life? It's 1849 in Havana, Cuba. Italian emigre Antonio Meucci and his wife Esther work in the city's premier opera house. But in his free time, Meucci follows his true passion, science. And like much of the world, Meucci is transfixed by the seemingly limitless power of electricity. One of the things that fascinated Antonio Meucci was electrotherapy. How electric power can help even in the therapy for certain maladies. So when a patient comes into Meucci's lab complaining of a toothache, he sets up a rudimentary device he hopes will ease the pain. He takes a wire to send an electric shock to the tooth. Meucci feeds the wire to an electromagnet two rooms away and delivers a powerful 114-volt shock. Rather than soothe the ache, the patient cries out in pain. But Meucci is struck by something different. He can hear the patient's cries clearly as if they're sitting in the same room. All of a sudden, he realized that sound traveled over that wire. Riveted by the discovery, Meucci is convinced that if he can refine his contraption, it will allow people to converse across vast distances. A year later, Meucci and Esther move to the U.S., where he hopes to improve and patent his groundbreaking device, which he calls the speaking telegraph. The Meucci's settle on Staten Island in New York City. For years, Meucci sinks all of his resources into perfecting the contraption and employs a magnetized coil to amplify the signal. To focus the sound, he crafts a mouthpiece and rudimentary speakers, like these on display at the Garibaldi Meucci Museum. Then, in 1860, he unveils his invention to a group of American businessmen. But things do not go smoothly. Meucci had a problem. He spoke only Italian. So everything had to go through a translator. And that takes away some of the nuances. Without commercial backing, he can't afford to patent his invention, and it languishes in obscurity for 10 years. In a last-ditch effort to validate his creation, Meucci takes his prototypes and blueprints to a prominent Manhattan telegraph lab for testing. The endeavor seems promising. The man in charge of the lab was intrigued, and he said, all right, leave everything here. We want to continue looking at this, and we'll get back to you. But for the next two years, the lab refuses to allow Meucci to conduct the tests. Frustrated and nearly penniless, he finally asks for the immediate return of his notes and original devices. He goes back to the lab. Well, at that point, they come out and they say they're lost. Later that year, Meucci receives stunning news. A young inventor has just filed a patent on a device that transmits sound over telegraph wires. His name is Alexander Graham Bell, and he calls his invention the telephone. 
Meiyuchi was in a state of stunned shock. He was shocked. Outraged by the similarities of Bell's device to his own, Meiyuchi does some digging. And what he discovers is stunning. Alexander Graham Bell had actually worked at the very lab that had lost Antonio Meiyuchi's instruments. Convinced the young inventor has stolen his work, Meiyuchi sues Bell. But with no patent or prototypes, Meiyuchi has little evidence to support his claim, and the judge rules in favor of Bell. The case is appealed to the Supreme Court, but before it reaches trial, Meiyuchi passes away at the age of 81. With no estate to sustain the legal battle, the case dies with him. But in 2002, 113 years after his death, the U.S. House of Representatives passes a special resolution aimed at addressing the inventor's work. It said, The life and achievements of Antonio Meucci should be recognized, and his work in the invention of the telephone should be acknowledged. And here, at the Garibaldi Meucci Museum in Staten Island, Antonio Meucci's early telephone models pay tribute to the lasting impact of a brilliant inventor. From duplicitous diamonds to an oceanic survivor, an outlaw marshal to an overlooked inventor. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.